Well, God chose to communicate his primary revelation to us in words. He gave us the scriptures written down. However, since words, by definition, have a range of meaning, different interpretations are possible. We have the very words of God, but there's been some question as to what the words actually mean. And so throughout church history, even some within the church have differed on this issue or that issue because of words. And for another reason, though, people also tend to gravitate toward one end of the spectrum when it comes to these differences. It's very easy for people to polarize and go to the North Pole, the South Pole, and really take sides. For example, is God sovereign in salvation or is man responsible? It's easier to pick a side and go with it than to live in the middle and contend it's not really an either or, but a both and. But on just about every issue, most people seem to just pick a side and go to the extreme of that side. Rare is the person with biblical balance in between. This is also proven to be true in the area of sanctification. Sanctification is all about the process of growing in godliness after salvation. But the question often comes up, how do we do this? Is it by God's power or our power? Do we have to work really hard or just kick back, let God work? Are we active? Are we passive? Is it up to us? Is it up to God? And as usual, many throughout church history have gravitated toward the extremes. One extreme has been called quietism. You may not have heard of quietism before, but you've heard of the slogan, which is, let go and let God. Or alternately put, I can't, God can. This view is all about recognizing and just submitting to God's power. We, we can't do anything. We don't have the power. You just got to just, just let, let God do it. He's got to do it for you. God must change us. All we can do is surrender and trust God, and that's it. The rest is up to him. We've got to let go and let God change us. In fact, the whole concept of pursuing good works or striving after godliness it goes against trusting God's power. Quietism was popularized by the Quakers and the Keswick movement. They reasoned that if God is completely sovereign in salvation, he must be totally sovereign in sanctification as well. We're saved by God's grace apart from work, so we must be made holy in the same way. We can't really do anything to grow or to change God. He's just got to do it. Now, the problem, however, is quietism ignores much of God's word. Yes, God must work in us, but we're also you know, actually told to strive after godliness. They confuse being dependent with being passive. We are to be dependent. We are not told to be passive. So it's no wonder that quietism historically has often led to to people just not striving after godliness and to living lives of sin as they wait for God to change them. Sin takes hold. Now, the other side of the equation, the other extreme, is known as pietism. And that, this is the opposite of quietism, where it's all about personal effort. Stop waiting for God. You've got to get to work. It's, it's all about you. You have to change yourself. You've got to get engaged. You've got to fight for your holiness. You've got to change. If you don't, God won't. Many of the Puritans in the 17th century and beyond were pietists. They were reacting to, to the cold, dead orthodoxy of, of people around them. People claiming to be Christians, but making no effort in, in holiness, living lives indistinguishable from non-Christians around them. So the Puritans especially, they live lives of extreme devotion, reading the Bible, praying for hours a day, the pitfall here, though, is often the right, such a desire for right living often gets divorced from the right power source for living and the right standard for living, which is God's word alone. And so sadly, this extreme often leads to the pitfall of legalism, where they take obeying to an extreme it was never meant to go. When you hear all this, though, where would you land? I'm sure just, just in hearing about this, you may have never heard of these before, but still, just in hearing, you might think to yourself, a little part of yourself would say, well, I guess if I had to pick, I'd go that way, or I would lean that way. It's like a pyramid. We all tend to fall down one side or the other. Rare is the person balanced at the top. What makes it even more challenging is that both sides have some Bible verses they can hold on to and attach to their view to give them some credibility. <clears throat> 
For example, Quietus can appeal to Galatians 2.20, which says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So you see, there's nothing we can do. It's all about Christ in us. He's got to do it. The life we live is just by faith. He has to do the work. But then Pietus on the other side will point out a verse like 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, which says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that verse says it's all up to us. We have to do our job to perfect holiness. We've got to work. So which is it? Which side is right? The answer is both and neither. As is often the case, both sides have elements of truth in them. They have something right. But at the same time, both sides are incomplete, making them both, therefore, wrong, ultimately. The Bible instead presents a a paradoxical middle ground, the the top of the pyramid, which accounts for for both sides of the truth without falling into both sides of of error. The Bible is actually full of these types of paradoxes, which, which are not contradictions, There are two truths that are not contradictory. They're complementary, but in a way we don't fully understand. Like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation, both are true. How do they work together? In many ways, it's a mystery to us. Or Christ having a divine nature, a fully divine nature, and a fully human nature perfectly coexisting in one person. How does that work? We don't fully know. Well, so it goes with sanctification. We have to work, but God has to work as well. We must fully yield to God's power while at the same time exerting maximum effort to grow. And this paradox is perfectly yet famously stated in the passage we have before us this morning found in Philippians chapter 2. So you can open your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. We're back in Philippians 2 this week. Now, moving on from that landmark passage of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, on the person and work of Christ, who spent weeks there, and we come to the next little passage, verses 12 and 13, only to find another landmark passage, this time on life in Christ. By the way, this is why myself and so many others love the book of Philippians so much, because it's chock full of these short, little, concise, but powerful passages that just set the bar on, on all these truths. And here, in just, in just two verses, Paul perfectly captures the balance between God's role and our role in sanctification. Now, just a quick couple minutes to get you resituated in, in Philippians overall. It's been a while. Paul, he starts this short letter by greeting the Philippian church, thanking God for their partnership with him in the gospel. He then writes to let them know about his circumstances. He had recently been imprisoned in Rome and and causing them much concern. But he writes to let them know that far from his imprisonment halting the progress of the gospel, it's actually furthered the progress of the gospel. He writes to to tell them that they need not grow weary or lose heart, but instead they've got to to keep going and and continue joining him and living life under and for the gospel, good news of Christ. So back in chapter 1, verse 27, he gives the first main exhortation in Philippians, where he says, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He exhorts them to walk in a worthy manner. Part of this worthy manner includes humble, selfless service of one another. And Paul addresses that at the beginning of chapter 2. That, in turn, led Paul to speak of Christ, who's the ultimate example of humble, selfless service. And so that explains the passage we just read or studied a while ago, verses 5 through 11. And now we get to verse 12, where we're at this morning. And Paul is he's now going back and resuming that main exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here he's reminding them that not only does that worthy conduct involve humble, selfless service, 
It also involves obedience, you know, that striving element. And so let's go ahead and read now Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now right off the bat, you can see how these verses are connected back to verses 5 through 11, talking about Christ. For not only did Jesus model for us perfectly what it, what it means to, to live a life of humility and selfless service, but Christ also modeled for us obedience, complete obedience, costly obedience to the will of the Father. And so now as, as Paul resumes his instructions for the church, he picks up on this theme of obedience, and now he exhorts them to, to get to work, to work out their salvation. But notice it's a balanced approach. If you read verse 12 by itself, you'd be led to that pietist view where you know, it's all about you. You've got to work it out. You've got to work hard. You've got to strive to grow. But at the same time, if you read verse 13 by itself, you'd be led to that, to that quietist approach where there's nothing you can do. God has to work. He even has to give you the will. It's up to God. But you see, Paul, he includes both verses in one breath. And he doesn't even try and reconcile them. He just lets them be. Side by side, there they are, and lets them be. You can choose to fall down either extreme, but the way, the way to follow Christ is found perfectly balanced at the top of the pyramid, accounting for both God's role and our role in this work, the work of sanctification. And so today our, our simple goal is to just study this short passage and strike the right balance using God's word to direct us how to live our lives, accounting for what God must do in us and what we must do in our lives as well. So to do this, we'll first explore man's work in sanctification, found in verse 12. And then equally, God's work in sanctification, found in verse 13, and finish by, by saying what can, we, can be said biblically about the balance between the two, how God's work and, and our work come together to guide us in our daily Christian lives. So let, let's begin with, number one, man's work in sanctification. Man's work in sanctification. Again, look at verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'll point out first the subject of this work, the subject of this work, and it's you. It's simple, it's obvious, but it's worth stating the verse 12 that the subject of this work is believers. Paul says, work out your salvation. That, that's the main command. It's the imperative given to the Philippian church, and by way of timeless truth, to, to all the church. This is an exhortation to all believers in the church to work out their salvation. So just, just file that away. Keep that in mind. This is a command for believers. Whatever it means, it's something you are being told to do. I trust you understand at least that much. You need to do this, whatever it is. Now, the real question, though, is what, what does it mean? And so we can point out, secondly, the object of this work. The subject of this work is you. The object of this work is sanctification, something the Bible calls sanctification. Again, the main command is very clear. You look at verse 12. It should, it should jump out at you. It's at the very end. Work out your salvation. In the Greek, it actually is at the very, very end. The last two words are work out. What does it mean, though? Well, it has to do with obedience. It's all about obeying God, the commands of God. It's very clear in the, con <clears throat> in the context that working out your salvation is akin to obeying the commands of God. Paul just finished talking about the obedience of Christ as our example. And then at the beginning of verse 12, he, he, he mentions their past obedience. He says, just as you have always obeyed, now much more, work out your salvation, i.e. continue to obey, excel in this obedience for which you are known. 
This is a command here to excel, to continue, to grow in your obedience. Just as Jesus came fully submitting and obeying the Father's will, so we are to live our lives fully submitting to and obeying the Father's will. What is God's will for the church? Well, for us as a church under the New Covenant, it's all of the moral imperatives of the New Testament. So just just read it all. For example, like, like Ephesians 4 gives you a little list. Don't lie, but speak the truth to your neighbor. Don't steal, but labor with your hands. Don't use your speech to tear others down, but to build others up. And the list goes on. We know, of course, that Christ himself encapsulated God's will in just two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. If you are, if you are truly obeying these, you're, you're in the will of God. But you understand, verse 12 here, we, the church, we're being exhorted to excel in our obedience to God. Now, that being said, still, you might be a little troubled or maybe a little confused. Some look at this verse and and they just wonder, but is this verse teaching works salvation? Right? Does it sound that way? I mean, I I thought we're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, right? But here's the verse telling us to work out our salvation. So what, what does that mean? Is this works salvation? And look, it's not wrong to ask the question. In this case, it has a simple answer. The simple answer is that in this verse, Paul is not talking about salvation, but about sanctification. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation, work to get your salvation, work to earn your salvation. He says work out your salvation. And don't forget the audience. Remember the, the subject of this work? He's talking to believers. He's talking to people who are already saved. They already possess salvation. And so he's telling you, know, you people who already possess salvation, now work it out. Live it out. Live out your salvation. Now that's a simple answer. I could just leave it at that. But I think you'll be helped more if I take that a bit further, actually, to, to explain that more. This verb, translated workout, means to do, to accomplish, to, to bring something about. It's what, what's called a present middle imperative. It just means it's a command with continued action. And so he's telling them, work out your salvation. Keep on working out your salvation until it's completed. Keep working out your salvation until your salvation is completed. Now that right there also might strike you as a little odd, you might be thinking, like, I thought, I thought our salvation was completed. How can we keep working out our salvation until it's finished? Isn't it, didn't Jesus finish it on the cross? Aren't we already saved? I thought our salvation was accomplished. Well, the answer is yes and no. You have to understand that in the Bible, there are past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. And the Bible speaks of our salvation in all three tenses. There's past tense. So Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved in the past. There's present tense, where 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the, the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. Present tense. There's even future tense. Romans 5.9 says, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we can say all three, like scripture does. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. All three are true in the Bible. Past, present, future. Just three different aspects of our salvation right now. And they're all true. And the better you understand that the three different facets of our salvation, well, the better you're going to understand Philippians 2.12 which says, work out your salvation. And i got to tell you, if, if you didn't know, this, this passage is, is one of the chief, if not the main passage on sanctification in all of Scripture. So it's worth spending a little time here and getting this right. So I want to help you further understand this past, present, future part of your salvation. Starting with your past salvation. At the beginning of your salvation. Just to, to keep it relatively simple. When you think of your past salvation, just think of three words. Regeneration, justification, adoption. And as I know, they're they're five-syllable words, right? They're getting up there. But the Bible uses them. Regeneration, 
justification, adoption. They hit the main points. In a moment of time, sometime in the past for you who believe, God made you alive. You were spiritually dead. He brought you to spiritual life. This is regeneration, also known as the new birth, which starts you off. At the same time comes justification. This is where God justifies or makes us right with him. That's all you got to think about. It says God making us right with him. We were not right. We were wrong with God because of this huge sin penalty that we had before him, the sin debt that we couldn't pay, so things weren't right. But Jesus, he paid that penalty on the cross, bearing God's wrath. And when we come to believe, God justifies us, which means first he makes us right with him by taking the sin debt and he cancels it out. He nails it to the cross. He forgives us all of our debt of sin through Christ's substitutionary payment on the cross. Which is why we sing, you know, Jesus paid it all. We're justified in him. There's also a second aspect of justification where not only does Jesus take our sin debt away, but he also gives us his own perfect righteousness. So our account goes from negative debt, infinity, negative infinity, to to perfect righteousness, positive infinity. Just we're as righteous as Christ in the eyes of God. We'll learn about that side big time later in Philippians 3. It's a huge point, Philippians 3. But just understand, Christ's work justifies us, enables us to be justified, made right with God. And that happens at your past salvation. That's a one and done thing. If you're truly saved, God justified you. It's in the past. It's a one-time event. And if you're truly saved, you're forever justified. You're forever made right with God. Finally, think about adoption, which doesn't need much explanation. In that moment when God saved us, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And even though we were his enemies, he made us alive and then even went so far as adopting us into his family. And so in that past moment, we become children of God. So all this refers to your past salvation. What role did you play in your past salvation? What role did your works, your effort play in your past salvation? The answer is none, zero. We we access it merely by faith, but we are saved, past tense, not as a result of of works. We are justified not as a result of works, but simply by God's gracious gift, which we access through faith. The whole of salvation is a gift of God. It is his work, and he will complete it. But understand, just because we were saved in the past, that does not necessarily mean our salvation is complete. In fact, the Bible teaches that it's not, which is why we also can speak of a present tense of our salvation we are currently being saved now don't get me wrong christ's work on the cross is finished his atonement is done it's accomplished but the saving benefits of that work have not been completely applied to us yet that's what we're waiting for and so we're we're justified we're adopted we're as good as saved but more still needs to be done to us before we get to heaven, so to speak. And so this now brings us to our present salvation. And and the one word for this in the Bible is sanctification. Sanctification. It refers to being made holy or purified. The word sanctify itself, it's nearly synonymous with the word holiness. It's related. What is holiness all about in the Bible? It's about separation. First, Holiness refers to being separated unto God. We as God's people, we're consecrated. We're set aside as God's own possession. We're made distinct from the world. And second, holiness means being separated from sin. We are to be holy in the sense of being unstained by sin, free from sin. Now, things can get a little more confusing because you have this word sanctification. It's all about holiness. And the Bible can use this also in two senses, that there's a past sanctification, a one and done, and then a present sanctification, like we need it anymore. But there's a little bit more. 
So sometimes the Bible speaks of us being sanctified in the past. Something that happened to us in the past. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul greets the Corinthian believers, and he greets them as those sanctified in Christ. Past tense. He even goes on to call them saints. Now that's a little weird, because if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were anything but holy. or They lived anything but lives of saints. In many respects, they were quite sinful and fleshly and, and immoral. So how on earth can Paul call the Corinthians saints and even say they were sanctified in the past? Well, this is talking about this past tense sanctification, which has to do with God's calling. When God saves us in the past, what does he do? Well, we said he, he regenerates us. He justifies us. He's, he adopts us. But I said there's more. He also sets us apart. He takes us unto himself. And that that means he sanctifies us. He he calls us as his own people. That's that's that first sense of holiness where, where God is setting us apart from the world. In that moment of time when you believed, God God took you. And you're now his. You're, you're in his church with his people. You're not in the world anymore. You're one of his. That's your past sanctification. And by that, we're made saints. The word saint literally means holy ones. And the Bible applies that word to all believers. Not just a special class, a small class like in the Catholic Church. The Bible actually calls every single true believer a saint, a holy one. What makes you holy? Your calling. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul called them saints by calling. They have been made holy because God called them. He set them apart unto himself. But you'll notice for the Corinthians, they were holy by calling. They weren't quite holy by conduct. They still lived pretty unholy lives. In the moment of of salvation, past salvation, they were set apart unto God. But they weren't fully set apart from sin. And so it goes for all of us. Which brings us to that, that present sanctification. This is not a past act. This is a present process. In this present sanctification, it's normally what we mean just by the word sanctification. And it can simply be defined as the lifelong process, the progressive process by which we are made holy like God is holy through the power of God's Spirit. And just to tie it all together, think back to Israel. After the Exodus, God, God takes them to the Red Sea, out into the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai. And what does God do there? Well, he, he calls them. He makes them his very own. He sanctifies them. They're now his holy nation. They're the chosen holy nation, set apart from all the other nations. They're now his. In that day, at Mount Sinai, he made them holy. But then, he, he, right after that, he tells them to be holy. How can both be true? Well, as you know, Israel thereafter, they were anything but holy. They did not live very holy lives. You see, they were holy in a sense. They were were sanctified that they were now God's people. But that merely begun the process of them living out holy lives. And so God at the same time called them, hey, you are holy, now live like it. You are my people, now now live like it. Now be holy as, as I am holy, God said to them. The same goes for us. When God calls us, he sanctifies us, he sets us apart. We're now in Christ, in the body of Christ, in the church. We are holy by calling. But we're still rough around the edges. I mean, think back to your salvation. You surely still had a lot of sin issues in your life. And sometimes you can still have quite quite a number of sins still grappling you or grappling with you, choking you. But this begins the process by God's power of being conformed into the image of Christ. And that's what sanctification is all about. And to a large degree, that's what your your whole Christian life is all about. You've been made holy, now now live it until you die. Spurgeon gave a great example of this. He said, you're like a piece of marble. And at, at initial salvation, God, he cuts you out of the mountain. He quarries you cuts you out of the mountain, takes you to his home. You you now belong to him. 
He has possessed you, purchased you, bought you, set you apart. You're now a special piece of marble. You're not in the mountain anymore. You're his. You've been sanctified in that regard, set apart. But you're still in rough shape. The image of Christ has only dimly been etched in you. And you resemble Christ only just a little. However, over time, by constant effort, all that does not belong will be chipped away from you. And you're shaped over time more and more into the image of Christ. And it's going to take a whole lifetime. But still, that that is our present salvation. That is our sanctification. Continually chipping away all the vestiges of sin and, and ungodliness that do remain in our lives as we are shaped more and more into the image of Christ. That is sanctification. Now, I know I've been laboring this, but, but if, you're, if you're with me, if you get this, now back to Philippians 2.12, this is what he's talking about. This, that, that process, that present sanctification, that, that's what it's all about. I should point out, unlike our past salvation, unlike our justification, our works, our effort, they do have a role to play in this sanctification. Our human effort, our works, play no part in justification, but they do play a part in our sanctification. Now, we don't work alone. We'll see again later, God must work. His work is involved, of course. He has to work in us. We're still dependent on God. But this verse makes clear, God tells us to get to work, to work out our salvation, to live it out. We've been given the gift, now live it out. Think of the other famous verse I'll read for you. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And you know it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that, and that, none, that no one may boast. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You see, we're justified by faith apart from works, but once God justifies us apart from works, now he expects us to get to work, not to earn our salvation, not to get into the church or into heaven. That's just by free gift. You're made holy by his free gift through faith. But once you're in, now while you're still alive, you still have the flesh, he wants you to to get to work, to live for him, to be like Christ. So back to our command in Philippians 2. Hopefully you have a fuller sense, a richer sense of what this means. Work out your salvation, your present tense salvation, meaning work out your sanctification. This is a call to obey God. You've already been brought into God's people, holy by calling. Now be holy as God is holy. This is your life's task. Understand that your past salvation, you were set free from sin's penalty and sin's power. Like we learned last week, through our union with Christ by virtue of his resurrection, we've overcome the penalty of sin, the power of sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin's penalty and sin's power. We've been freed from them. However, we have not been freed from the presence of sin. It very much remains. And this is why we wait for a future salvation. As it stands, we still have what's called the the sinful flesh. We were given a new nature by Christ, but he didn't take the old nature away. He left it. It still remains. And so now we have within us two competing forces. We have the new self joined with the Holy Spirit in us. And then we have the old self, the flesh, the sinful part of our nature. And this is why there exists within us this dichotomy, this battle. And this is why we're told now to do battle, to wage war against the flesh, to crucify the flesh with its thoughts and desires, to make no provision for the flesh, but to walk by the Spirit. All of that, it's simply telling you, work out 
your salvation. We're talking here about the lifelong process of carving out sin in your life and instead living in obedience to God's will and ways. And granted, we, we can't do any of this apart from God's power. We'll, we'll still see that. But for now, at the very least, you've got to take seriously this call to work, to strive, to discipline yourself. The Christian life is not passive. It's active. It's not about sitting around, letting go, letting God. Think of all the the metaphors the Bible uses to describe our present Christian life. A vacation, a stroll in the park, horseback riding on the beach are not included. Instead, how are our new lives in Christ described before heaven? A race, a fight, a battle, a labor. Does that sound passive to you? No, work is required. Spiritual sweat and diligence are required if you are to grow. So, what have we established so far? The picture is still incomplete of of how we are to grow as Christians until we bring in God's work. But still, already, you should understand the need to take seriously your role, your work. You have a work. You have something to do. And at the very least, you should take seriously then all the commands and all the admonitions in Scripture that call you to obey, to, to strive after godliness. You, you should take serious obedience to the Lord. Commands like Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hebrews 12:14, which says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. <clears throat> Second Timothy 2:22, which says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Romans 8:13, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. And 1 Corinthians 6:18, flee immorality. The list goes on, you know. But look, if we have no role in sanctification, if we are merely to, to let go, let God do the work and, and do nothing ourselves, all these, all these verses are meaningless. In fact, they're misleading. But no, rather, they stand as legitimate calls to action, calls to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You have a high calling, the calling of Christ. He died for you. You've been justified. You've been adopted. Now, live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. John 14, verse 15, Jesus himself said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in John 15, verse 14, he said, You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Anyone who says the Christian life does not involve obedience and holy living, they don't really follow Christ. We can do nothing apart from him. We need not do anything to to earn his favor. But as we've been made his friends, as we've been called unto him, he calls us to obedient and holy living. This is the call. And you need to take seriously the call to work, to work out your salvation. Well, we must move on. How long must we keep up this work? I'll point out thirdly, the time of this work. We've mentioned that the subject of this work, the object of this work, third, the time of this work. And it's always, just always. Look once again at verse 12 of Philippians 2. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, or so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You'll see here the Philippians, they had a reputation for this obedience for growth and godliness. He, he says to them, "Just you guys have always obeyed. The reputation of the Philippian church preceded them. They were known for being godly. They were known for being mature. They were known for being loving. But still, Paul told them to excel still more. So back in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, look, you guys are loving, but I pray that you would grow more and more in your love. 
And here he, he knows they're obedient, but he, he's praying and admonishing them to grow even more in their obedience. Even more now because Paul is absent. The Apostle Paul, he founded the Philippian church. He personally discipled them and taught them. He modeled before them what Christ-likeness is all about. But he's no longer with them. In fact, now he's imprisoned. He may never see them again. But, but here's the real test for them. Will they continue to follow Christ? Now that Paul, their spiritual mentor, is gone. Will they really strive to obey the Lord now that the Apostle Paul is not looking over their shoulder, keeping them in line? Paul tells them they must. And that is because the work of sanctification is constant. The time of this work, it's always. We are to be always engaged in this work, whether you're alone or with others, doesn't matter. Whether on a Sunday morning or Saturday night, you're to be striving at the work of sanctification. And it may be surprising how relevant this aspect of sanctification is. I've encountered more than a few Christians who they appear very obedient, very holy, when they're around maybe a pastor or other Christians. But otherwise, not so much. I mean, do you first consider, do you have a reputation for obedience, for striving after godliness, for at least taking seriously the call to, to follow Christ? But what about when other Christians aren't around? Maybe on Sunday mornings you clean up your language, but at work, throughout the rest of the week, you're just as foul-mouthed and unedifying in your speech as, as any other unbeliever. Or maybe an elder comes over for dinner, and in the home you appear very nice and gentle and peaceable, but otherwise you've got an uncontrolled anger problem. If you don't let your own sinful flesh deceive you, this is actually part of the battle. It's easy to appear righteous before men, Anyone can do it. And your flesh is very content in having you appear holy. But remember, we have an audience of one, God. He sees us all the time. And who you are when you're alone, that's who you are and no more. So who are you? Are you perfect? No, none of us still measure up to Christ. But are you at least in the battle? Do you have as your aim obedient living to Christ? Are you striving and running after him? You have to run this race at all times, even when you're alone, until the end. Speaking of the end, I mentioned our salvation had a past, present, and future aspect. That future aspect is called glorification and it refers to the time when we are made completely perfect, not just in spirit, also in body at the resurrection that's when we will finally, 100%, be free from sin's penalty, sin's power, and even sin's presence. So that, that's the good news. That's the finish line when our salvation is completed. The bad news is it, it won't happen until after we die. And so now we have a race. We have a race to run, a battle to fight. So do this, and do this always. The subject of this work is you the object of this work is sanctification. The time of this work is always. And lastly, the attitude of this work is fear and trembling. The attitude is fear and trembling. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul concludes this brief admonition with a note of the proper attitude required, fear and trembling. God's calls to holiness they're serious. It's serious business. It's a serious work requiring a serious attitude. Now, I'll say real quick, I know the longstanding cultural Christian caricature of Christians that, you know, they're always so serious. They're so uptight. They never have any fun. Just that they're, they're, they're that buzzkill at any party. It's like the movie Footloose. Basically, the villain is the Christian preacher who forbids dancing in the whole town. Like, that's, that's the reputation of Christians. And I trust we can, can break the stereotype because, look, for us as Christians, we are those who can enjoy life more than anyone. 
on the planet. Why? We've been set free from slavery to sin. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And knowing God, it leads us to a deeper joy, a deeper fulfillment, a deeper enjoyment than the world can even conceptualize. They can't even touch the level of joy we can have in the Lord. So we can actually appreciate and enjoy all the good things this life has to offer more than anyone receiving them as good gifts from our Father. But at the same time, we've also been made aware that we have an enemy who's still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we even have our own sinful flesh prompting us with evil desires within. And so at the same time, an attitude of seriousness must not be lost. We cannot be frivolous. And Paul describes this attitude as one of fear and trembling. And biblically, there are two different types of fear. Thankfully, this is not talking about the fear of terror or dread. One time, Angel and I were in Palm Springs for a conference, and we we pulled into the garage of our rental house. We were staying there. And right as we pulled in, a huge, and I mean size of your, your hand, huge desert spider just dropped right onto the windshield as we pulled in. And Angel had fear, you know, terror, dread. I later got it to the floor and, and crushed it with the brick. But that, that's thankfully not the fear we're talking about here. This is a, a different type of fear and trembling. I don't think she got out of the car until I finished it. <laughs> but the fear he's talking about here is one of reverence, respect. This is the awe you feel when you know you're in the presence of greatness. Like the good news, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but we still should have a holy fear of offending such a glorious God. By grace, he's called us near. We can draw near to God. But still don't forget, you're still standing on hallowed ground when you're around him. Remember that. We can't take this lightly. We can't take our sanctification lightly. Jesus himself said, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Revelation 3.19 We've passed out of judgment. Our Heavenly Father, though, may still discipline us in love to show us the folly of sin. Better yet, though, not even to go there. Repent, honor God, be zealous, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is your work of sanctification. Now, at this point, I trust most of you, you know me by now. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 I get to a couple of verses like this. I mean, these are actually, they're short, but they're meaty verses. There's a lot in here. And I don't see one sermon. I see two sermons. (laughs) So we will indeed come back next time. We haven't even touched verse 13, God's work in this whole thing. And then after that, the, the balance between the two. How do you bring together God's work and man's work and rightly navigate Christian living? So I have to say, I really hope you come next week because this is admittedly incomplete until then. It's only half the picture, and it's not enough. Just as if you read verse 12 alone, apart from verse 13, you have an incomplete picture of sanctification. So it goes with this own message. We need to incorporate God's power, how he enables us to work. Apart from that, we can do nothing. So I trust you'll come back then. But just one final note. If you were to take away... Just one thing from what we have learned from verse 12 by itself. At least let it be this, that you have a serious work. You have a serious work to do. That much is clear. At the very least, we've eliminated any notion of passive Christian living. You cannot just sit around and wait to change. You can't just wait for God to zap you. He already did. It's called justification. But now you gotta, you got to do something. God must continue to work. We'll get there next week. But verse 12, we've learned you must work as well. Having been saved in the past, you now have a, have a serious task on your hands to work out your salvation, to live it out, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is 24-7. It's lifelong. And it's serious. So at the very least, let this conviction sit with you this morning that your Christian life is a serious pursuit. And just ask yourself, do you 
Do you take it seriously? Do you strive for godliness? Do you, do you discipline yourself? Do you pursue righteousness? Or do you spend more time and effort trying to improve your body? Or maybe your house, your car, your bank account, your, your career. Don't forget that if Christ is truly your Lord, you're, you're now in a race, a battle, a struggle. So are you engaged? Are you competing to win? Or are you spiritually lazy? 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, Discipline yourselves for, this, for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Take seriously the call this morning to work out your salvation. Just start here. At the very least, start here. We have a serious work ahead of us. And then join us next time to learn how. How do we do it and how God works in us to bring about this work. Let's pray. Our great God, we, we're thankful this morning, sitting at the feet of your word, learning about the work, the ongoing work of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we have been saved in Christ purely by grace, apart from any of our works, our efforts, our striving, and despite, or in spite, rather, of our, our weakness, our unholiness, you saved us, you regenerated us, made us alive, you justified us through faith, making us fully right with you, Lord, you even adopted us into your family. We've received so much in Christ. We have been saved. Yet, Lord, we know we are still being saved. That is conformed to Christ's image. We've been made your own. Now you are pleased to, to, to make us more like Christ. You could have just taken us out. You could have taken us directly to heaven, Lord, but you are glorified. You are pleased as we strive for this sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So work in us. Much to be said about your work, Lord. We ask you to work in us, but help us this morning just to be convicted. We have a serious pursuit, a serious work ahead of us. This life is to be lived with effort, and so may we work as well. We look forward to our, our, our future and final salvation when we will finally be free from this body of sin, set free from sin's own presence. We, we can't wait for that day, Lord. But in the meantime, may we work striving according to your power, which works within us. All to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.